0: Uh, two Sundays ago we did wrap up Paul's brief section on settling divisions in the church uh, we learned that the Corinthians were really just doing the unthinkable filing lawsuits and dragging their brothers and sisters through their pagan secular court system it was just unbelievable kind of behavior for Christians to to be suing each other at all and then making it worse to take them through a secular court system to settle their divisions it just didn't make much sense but it's something that was happening there and to address the problem, Paul essentially reminded them of two things. Firstly, of who they were before Christ. You know, they were unrighteous. They were engaging in all sorts of unrighteous behavior, uh, you know, divisions and sexual immorality and idolatry, ad- adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, verbal abuse, and swindling. These are, these are things from his list, his vice list, 1 Corinthians 6 9b and 10. So that's who they were. They lived in those things perpetually. And then secondly, he reminds them of, of who they are or who they were at that moment in Christ. Like you're you're not what you were. And he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And that's the opposite of all that stuff. They're righteous because they were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. So to try to pull them out of this weird carnal mode he shows them what they were and reminds them of what they are and in my personal opinion which probably isn't worth a whole lot uh... my humble opinion that is a really really good way to you know just to help christians understand look that's not who you were because we slide back into these that's not who you that's who you were and this is who you are so i think that's a very effective way to kind of bring us back to where we should be and that's exactly what paul did as righteous people in Christ, these Corinthians and all Christians are to live and act righteously, and they're to put to death carnal attitudes and behaviors and divisions and sexual immorality and dispute settling in the pagan courts. And that was really the thrust of Paul's message in the previous section. In the next section, Paul closes his teaching on carnal sexuality, because that's the banner or header that we've been dealing with and under. He, he kind of closes it out with an exhortation or an encouragement, and, and even with a bit of warning there, but he, he's, what he talks about is he talks about the importance of a Christian's physical body or body, what their bodies should and should not be used for, and, and who, and, and I think more, more importantly, and we won't really touch on this much today, but next week, but it's that who their bodies actually and truly belong to, and who it is that purchased their bodies. Now in in America we have such radical individualism. Everything is about the individual. It really blurs the lines and and I think really undermines and and puts a a cloud or a fog over the truth. Christians are never to think of themselves as actual individuals who possess autonomy and control and uh, sovereignty over their own bodies. But in America, where it's all about radical individualism, I mean, we are told every day we are hit with thousands of ads every day that talk about us as individuals and the importance of being an individual and expressing yourself. But Christians, on the other hand, have been bought at a high price. They do not belong to themselves. Their bodies do not belong to them. Very similar in a marriage, right? When you go up and you make your vows, you're vowing that the whole of your person belongs to this person that you're marrying and vice versa. And so, when you're in a marriage, like I'm in a marriage with Rachel, I don't know how she stands it, I don't know how she handles it, because I'm a rugged individualist, but I belong to her, and this body is hers, and, and the same is true of, of her to me. And so, and it's the same thing as a Christian. Christ has purchased these bodies of ours, they belong to Him. And so, this radical, rugged individualism really is a contradiction to what we are supposed to be as Christians. We're not supposed to think of ourselves as individuals, but as members of Christ. He has purchased, he owns us. And so, this is really the primary thrust of Paul's teaching in the remainder of this chapter. It's really where he's going, because we know that some of them in this church have been thinking of themselves as individuals and doing whatever they please, and even claiming grace, even claim well, I'm covered by grace, so what I do with this really doesn't matter, and that is a, a wrong, wrong mentality and wrong way to think, so that's exactly what he's going to deal with here. We'll start that part today. This is going to be a two-part sermon because I've got only five points, but there's no way I could bang them all out in one message, so... If you guys could take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians, we're going to look and focus on chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, just a couple verses today. I have entitled this really kind of a two-part sermon, The Importance of the Believer's Body. Now it's starting to make sense as to how this subject matter makes sense for New Year's because this is when preachers would be talking about, hey, use your body for Christ in 2023, right? So it works, I'm excited about it. Five-point sermon. I'm going to give you two today from verses 12 to 14. Next Sunday, Lord willing, God brings us back by His mercy and grace. We'll look at the remaining three. Unless I add one or two, you never know. Uh, And that will be in verses 15 to 20. I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work because without the aid and work and power of the Holy Spirit, this is a lecture. And I don't know about you, but um, I I didn't come down here to preach a lecture, and I don't think you came down to hear one. Amen? Amen right? You don't need that. You came to hear a sermon from God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word and and thank you for the opportunity to preach it. It's such, a, uh, as Cameron always says, an undeserved privilege. um, My mind is mostly blown by how you've called me to do it. And it's blown because I I know who I am. and I know who I want to be and I struggle with that. I want to be like Christ. I really struggle with that. But I know who I am and I know my foibles and my sins and it's just amazing that 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 you have in your providence, in your sovereignty, in your infinite wisdom, you have employed broken men to preach your perfect word. And you have employed broken people to serve your cause and kingdom, to preach the gospel. And so that's who we are today. We're just a mess, Lord, but you're perfect. And in some ways, we're just your masterpiece. And so, Lord, we pray that you sanctify us this morning, that you build us up and make us more like Christ. Challenge us for the coming year. Challenge us today. Lord, be glorified in all that is preached here today and all that is done. This is for you. It's not really just for us. It is for you. We have come to worship you. And so, help us to worship you during this time. Help us to be attentive. And if, we, if we're note takers, help us to take good notes. If we're just really good listeners, help us to listen. But most of all, help us to apply and live out the truths that we will learn today. We commit our time to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, let's pick up where we left off on December 18th because that was the last time we were in this book. And look at our first point for this morning. Number one, what Paul does here as he transitions into this into this next subject of the importance of the body the first thing he does is he exposes the Corinthians or their corrupt view of Christian freedom their corrupt view of Christian freedom and we see this in verse 12 Christians have what's called Christian Liberty or Christian freedom they are literally free in Christ and that does not mean that they are free to do whatever they want whenever they want without any sort of consequence or spiritual catastrophe following that. But we have indeed been freed from the penalty of the law, of of God's law because everyone is under its condemnation. We've been freed from that. We've been freed in Christ by the blood of Christ, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So every Christian is free and has Christian freedom. The trouble is, is that sometimes we end up abusing it. We don't use it for its intended purposes, and that is really the first thing that Paul deals with here. They have Christian freedom like all Christians, these Corinthians do, but their view of it's not right, it's off, it's not theologically sound, it's not entirely biblical. Verse 12, Paul says it like this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then he says, all things are lawful for me, he repeats it, and then he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. So. The first thing that I want you to notice about this statement, I have misunderstood that statement for for a couple decades now. The first thing that I want you to notice about verse 12 are the quotations. Look at the verse in your Bible. If your Bible does not have quotations, find a new Bible, okay? Notice the quotation marks at the beginning and at the end of that, that that double statement. He says the same thing twice, and it begins with a quote, and it ends with a quote. As in, quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote. Twice that happens in this verse. This tells us that Paul was either quoting the Corinthians directly or maybe citing or quoting a slogan that was developed by Christians early on. Paul is not saying all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, or not all things are. Some things can can um, bind me up. He's not promoting the idea of all things being lawful. He is quoting them because they are under the impression that in their Christian freedom, all things are lawful. We can do whatever we want because we have the grace of God. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. We have eternal security. So. Who cares if we mingle in a little sexual immorality? Who cares if we mingle in a little lying, a little cheating, a little robbery, a little adultery, a little homosexuality, a little fornication? This is the mentality that he's now attacking. I've always thought that Paul himself was saying, all things are lawful for me, as a blood-bought believer, he's quoting them. He's quoting their funky, messed-up view of Christian liberty. So there's a huge difference. If you miss the quotations, you do not understand what's being said here. Now, we do not know the precise origin of the original statement, right? All things are lawful for me. We don't know if the Corinthian, if it it was born and hatched in the Corinthian church, if this was something they had come up with, a, a, a slogan that they had come up with. We don't know the exact origin of where this statement came from. But I think that it is primarily Corinthian and probably originated in that church. This is a church that played fast and loose with God's grace. Now we're saved by grace, we have eternal security, hey, why not mingling a little of this and a little of that? We are learning from this first epistle to the Corinthians that this is exactly how they thought. So, I don't think that this was a slogan that developed at the church of Ephesus or anywhere else or down at the uh, Agora, the markets, or down at the place where the philosophers talk. I think this is a Corinthian idea. It is a play on Christian freedom, and it is not the right view of Christian freedom. I think it's their statement. And and really, the thinking behind it is that all things are lawful or permissible for believers because they're not under the law of God anymore, which condemns all sorts of illicit sinful behavior. They're not under that anymore. So... Since they're under grace now, instead of the law, we can do whatever we want. That's really what that statement means. When they say that, that's what they're saying. We're not under God's law. We've been liberated from that. What you need is God's law because it's going to regulate and govern how you live. But they're abandoning it here. We're under grace. Now, there is a bit of truth here. There is a bit of truth in in the statement, all things are lawful. There's a little bit of truth there. Okay? A little bit we we can engage and we do engage in in all things in a sense good bad and ugly and we don't have to we don't have to worry about eternal security what I'm saying is is that if we find ourselves engaged in some sort of sin God doesn't pull the blanket of our salvation out from underneath us that's what I'm saying so there's a bit of truth to it In some ways, if you really think about the sovereignty of God in salvation and the sovereign grace of God in salvation, all things are lawful in the sense that you could engage in just about anything and not lose your salvation. So in that regard, there's truth. Nothing can, what, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. Amen? Amen. Amen. But the statement also reeks of Gnosticism and antinomianism, two heresies. In Gnosticism, the physical body is irrelevant because all physical matter is just evil and useless. The only thing that matters in Gnosticism, which is a belief that was developing at this time and is still around today. Sadly, it's around in churches. The only thing that matters in the Gnostic system is a person's spiritual life. What they do with their physical bodies is irrelevant. It doesn't matter as long as they are tethered to Christ by faith. They believe in Christ, the physical body is irrelevant, it doesn't matter what I do with it because I have faith, I'm safe, I'm protected, so I can just use my body however I want. That is Gnosticism in a nutshell. If a person has faith, they can do as they please with their bodies. Sexual immorality really doesn't matter because that's a physical act. Fornication, which is a type of sexual uh, immorality, that's sleeping with someone who's not your wife, Sleeping outside of wedlock, that doesn't really matter because, hey, what matters is I have faith. My physical body doesn't matter. Adultery, cheating on your spouse, that doesn't really matter because that's a physical act. In the end, in Gnosticism, it's faith that keeps the person pure, not what they do with their physical body. And before this particular heresy, because believe me, that's a heresy. It is a heresy to think that the physical world and our physical bodies have no relevance and mean nothing. That's a a heresy to even entertain that idea. It's a heresy to think that we're just guarded and protected by faith and we can do whatever we want with these bodies. That's the Gnostic heresy. But before it was called Gnosticism, it was called Docetism. And before it was called Docetism, John called it the deep things of Satan in Revelation chapter 2, verse 24. I bet you didn't know that. How cool is that, that John already had his finger on it because he was starting to see it in the churches. And they called it the deep things of Satan. And an early teacher and proponent of this system of docetism or the deep things of Satan or early Gnosticism was a prophetess from from the region or the town of Thyatira and her name or at least she was called Jezebel. Isn't that funny that she's called Jezebel? If you know anything about Jezebel from the Old Testament, you know she was a mess. And in in the Old Testament, Jezebel was a mess. In the New Testament, she's just as much a mess basically teaching people at the church of Thyatira, we can sleep together, we can have all these things going on, we can commit all these these profane acts, but as long as we have faith in Christ, we're good to go. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20 is where we read about her. So she was an early proponent, maybe even an inventor of this idea. That's Gnosticism. And this statement reeks of it, Antinomianism, another heresy, is a combination of two Greek words, anti, which means against, and nomos, which means law. Antinomianism, together it means against the law. I'm not talking about speeding. I'm not talking about like I can't drive 55. That's a civil law. We're talking about God's law here. We're talking about, more specifically, the Ten Commandments. An antinomian thinker does not believe that God's law is applicable to Christians at all. It doesn't apply. It's been done away with by Christ. And I don't know how they come up with that because Christ said, I have not done away with the law. Not one jot or tittle will disappear until the day of the Lord or until I say. But they figure since the believer is saved by grace, the law has zero relevance to them. It's not a guide nor a schoolmaster, which the Bible calls it. Christians are free to do as they please because grace is their law, not the commandments of God. One blogger, online blogger, wrote, he says, antinomianism is a heresy that's all about grace. And I would say it's about hyper-grace, a wrong view of grace. But he says it's all about grace. And he says, and we see the results in the church today. And then he gives some examples. It's just a little gossip. That's not a real sin anyway. It's not like my pornography use actually hurts anyone else. Uh, yeah, it does. I, I know I have an anger problem, but I can't help it. It's just the way I am. Jesus understands. Huh. Everybody does it sometimes. Don't be, uh, don't be Lloyd the legalist. It's no big deal. And then he says, these are hints of antinomianism. The belief that because we are saved by grace, sinning really isn't a big deal any longer. That's the way that we see antinomianism playing out in the church today. And those are wonderful examples. I think I'm I'm probably guilty of using some of those excuses at times. I think we all are. Antinomianism is a watered-down view of grace. It's a corrupt view of Christian freedom. Grace does not make all things lawful nor grant Christian autonomy and freedom to do whatever a Christian wants to do. Grace is not intended for that purpose. God did not give us his saving, sanctifying grace so that we'd just be saved and can do whatever we want. Grace frees the Christian, frees that believer from the penalty of God's law, and what a mighty penalty it was because we see it displayed on the cross as Jesus is obliterated by God's wrath, frees that believer from the penalty of God's law and then empowers the Christian, to obey God's law. It's a law. (laughs) Look, as unbelievers, we can't obey it. We can't do it right. (coughs) It condemns us at at every point. But when a person is saved, they can actually now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because of grace, they can now obey that law. Now, they don't have to do it to be saved. They do it because they are saved. Grace enables us to know, enables us to love, enables us to obey God, not to engage in carnal fantasies to satisfy our wicked flesh. Grace is not a license for sin. It is not. It is a free gift that cost Christ everything, everything. His glory as he condescends and comes down here. It cost him his his life on a cross. Cost him his dignity as God incarnate as our sin is put on him. It cost him for a brief moment communion with the Father as the Father turns away. It cost him the wrath of God. Our sin nailed him to that cross. So, he goes to the cross because of grace. He gives us His grace. He absorbs the wrath and all these things. So therefore, there's no possible way to view grace as some kind of license for us to stay in the very things that Christ died to pay for. That would never make any kind of sense, and that's precisely what antinomianism does. It's what Gnosticism does in a sense. It is a free gift that cost Christ everything. Let me, let me just say this, and I think this is a, a good thing to say at this juncture. Okay, the difference between an immature Christian, maybe a new believer or just a Christian that's immature because sadly it is possible to be a Christian of 20 years and to be very immature because somehow you ended up at a church that doesn't do expository preaching and every week it has, you know, five points, now I'm making fun of myself, but it has five points on how to have your best life now. So it doesn't really ground you in doctrine. It really doesn't teach you the word. And so it's possible to be a Christian for a very long time and to still be a spiritual infant. But the difference, and it's really sad to me, but the difference between an immature Christian and a mature Christian, the mature Christian does not say all things are lawful for me. He or she never says that. That's just not their attitude. They don't look at like salvation as a free for all and I can do what I want. They don't look at being blood bought as some kind of free pass. A mature Christian will never do that. A mature Christian says, God has determined what is lawful for me in his word. This I will discover, this I will do. That's the difference. So what are we seeing happen here in Corinth? We've got either people that aren't saved or baby Christians or just super immature Christians, very carnal, We don't know exactly, but something's wrong. Something's off. The mature one doesn't say that or even entertain that idea. They're not thinking about what they can do and get away with. They're thinking about what they should do according to God's law. And then when they fall short of that, they're repentant and confessional and contrite and and asking God for mercy all over again. Cleanse me of this ridiculousness. There's a huge difference between mature and immature. Notice how Paul responds to the Corinthian silly Gnostic slash antinomian slogan, right? You know, all things are lawful for us. Notice how he responds to it in the first part of the verse. He says, but not all things are helpful. You're saying all things are lawful for you, and then he responds, okay, in a sense, yes. So he's agreeing and disagreeing with them simultaneously, but he's saying in a sense, yes. But he's also saying, but not all things are helpful. Okay, he's just being reasonable here. He agrees with them because he believes in Christian freedom. I don't think there's anyone, well, you know, Jesus and the apostles probably understood it better than anyone, obviously, Jesus, but you're not going to find a whole lot of people that had a better grasp of Christian liberty and freedom than Paul. Let's not forget how the apostle championed it in Galatians 5.1. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's literally telling... The Galatians, that you have been set free in Christ by the grace of God. Don't put yourself under the yoke of the law any longer. He's not talking about just obeying the law in their daily lives. He's saying don't try to get justified by obeying the law. You're justified by faith alone. This guy championed Christian freedom. Biggest proponent for it, I think, in the New Testament with the exception of Christ. So he agrees with them that all things are lawful in the sense that they have the freedom to do all things and don't have to worry about death spiritual death he disagrees because he knows that using Christian freedom to engage in all things is not in any way shape or form going to be helpful it's not gonna be helpful I mean there's just some things you know there's some things that we do and engage in that really aren't overtly sinful right I mean we do a lot of things all the time amen I mean we're just always active and busy and always doing things and you know, and, and uh, uh, as, as, as Christians and, and a great many of us in this room are maturing and all that, we're not, we're not engaging in overtly sinful things, but we're just doing a lot of things all the time. Take, for instance, hobbies. Hobbies aren't inherently sinful unless your hobby is going to the bar, getting ripped and dancing on a table. That's not a good hobby. My hobby when I was in my late teens and early 20s was drinking. That's a sinful hobby. But hobbies aren't necessarily sinful. If your hobby becomes an obsession that distracts you from all other things, now you got an issue. But hobbies aren't inherently sinful. Leisurely expeditions like you know, going to Monterey is one of my favorite things to do. One of my least favorite things to do is going to Disneyland uh, because (laughs) as I get older my feet just cannot handle it. You know, by the time I get to Small World I have, my feet are like big worlds. They're just (laughs) fat and pulsating and hurting. It was so bad one year, we went there, and I had to leave Disneyland to go find a shoe place. And then my my wife's like, see, all you want to do is just go get new shoes. I was trying to save my life. And then not thinking about how uncomfortable new shoes are, and then now walking around Disneyland with shoes that weren't broken in. Totally defeated the purpose, but I did get new shoes out of it. Rachel was right. But right, leisurely expeditions—you know, going to Monterey for a weekend with your spouse, or going to Disneyland with you—that's not inherently sinful. I think there's some Christians that would argue that going to Disneyland or having anything to do with them is sinful because that's a wicked company. Well, you can go to Disneyland and not sin. Maybe you might think that, well, if I give them my money, it's sinful. Well, is that—are you directly sinning by giving them your money? Not necessarily. What what I'm saying is the point is you can have hobbies, you can have leisurely trips, there's things that you can do that aren't inherently sinful. You can be a big time investor. You just want to invest all the time, you know, you you take your money and and you don't put it into crypto. It's supposed to be funny because I did that and I'm paying for it. The the investment, I didn't invest much but it's worth like a buck 19 right now. Save me Elon, right? Investing, not inherently sinful, if it's all you do it is. How about fitness? Fitness isn't inherently sinful. Uh, The body's a temple, we should take care of it. Now, if all we do is take pictures of ourselves and post it on Instagram, and that's called narcissism, it becomes sinful. But fitness isn't inherently wicked or sinful. Going out to dinner, not inherently sinful. Garage sales, there's people in here that love to do that. Or I have to include myself, gun shows, (laughs) not necessarily sinful. How about shooting, it's a hobby of mine, not necessarily sinful. I would even say this, and I'm not trying to promote the use of alcohol, but having a cold one with a buddy, that's not inherently sinful. Luther drank, just, it's a joke, right? Like, because Luther (laughs) drank doesn't mean it's okay for us to do it. Could be bad for you, maybe you shouldn't do it. I'm saying the things that we engage in on a normal daily basis, the things that we're doing, whether it be leisure or whatever, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily sinful. But now I have to ask this question. Are these things, they're not sinful, But are they helpful? There's the difference. Because that's what Paul's talking about right now. Are they helpful? Right now you're going, I don't think half of what I do is. Amen. Happy New Year. (laughs) How how should they be helpful? Do they help us develop and grow spiritually and become more like Jesus? Um, I think that when I go to Disneyland, I become most unlike Jesus. Because I'm mad because my feet hurt, and there's weird people. And I went down there during a time of month one time that was just, it was like gay days in Anaheim. And it was like, woo, okay. Note to self, don't go down there in June or whenever it was, May, I don't remember. But do the things that we do help others? Do they help us, firstly, develop in our relationship with Christ? I think a great many things that we do don't have anything to do with that. Do they help others? Are they helpful to others? Are they helpful to the church? Right? I think this is mostly what Paul has in mind here. You, you, can, you can engage in all things, but not everything's helpful. Are they helpful to the church? In fact, I would think, and I would say, and I'm going out on a limb, and I've got to be the first one convicted here, but for the most part, the, the things that we engage in a lot of times cost money, which is money that could be invested in the ministries, So that's not helping the church for us just to spend all our money and time on ourselves and just to do all these things and, you know, how many trips to Disneyland do we need? Every time I go down there, it's $3,500. That's money that could be given to the cause of Christ, right? Or how much time do you invest in some of these things? That's time that you could give to service unto the Lord. Just think about it. Like, I'm not trying to hammer you. I'm just saying. Do they help others? Do they help the church? Do they help advance the cause of Christ? Do our things lend to the gospel? Are they helpful? Now you've got to ask this question. Why is using our Christian freedom to be helpful? Because that's exactly what Paul's talking about. Why is that so important? Because Paul is making it very important here. I'll tell you why. Because we are running out of time and evil is pervasive. Ephesians 5.16, Right? The, the, the world is winding down. Christ is coming. We, we have a, a commission to be helpful. How so? By going into the world to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark sixteen fifteen. By making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Hmm. We you start thinking about it like that, we are commissioned by Christ himself, who has all authority in heaven and earth, to be helpful primarily to the gospel. That is the main purpose of your Christian freedom, not leisure, not anything else, not investing or anything else unless you're investing in the kingdom. Just stop and think about that. This is where Paul is at this is the Christian's priority. You see, we have priority problems here as a church in America because we have crazy, pervasive individualism, radical individualism. It's all about us and what we're doing and how we should have a good time and feel good and all that, which doesn't jibe at all with what Scripture teaches. It is the Christian's priority to be helpful to others for the sake of Christ and His gospel. First in our homes, and then beyond. Generally speaking, we do not think of what we do, generally speaking, on a regular basis, we do not think of what we do in terms of helpfulness, do we? Not at all. No, we just simply do what we enjoy, what we desire. We do what makes us happy, right? But Paul is challenging us here. He's challenging the Corinthians. He wants us to change the way that that they and back then and we today, change the way that we think and begin to use our freedom wisely by being helpful. That is a proper use of Christian freedom. Spending this wonderful, gracious gift of Christian freedom entirely on ourselves or using it even worse to engage in carnal, fleshly things like sexual sin, that is an improper use of Christian freedom. It's abuse, not proper use. It's bad stewardship. And if we treat grace while we're engaging like this, and if we treat grace like a a rug to sweep our iniquities under, that's Gnosticism, that's antinomianism, right there. Notice what Paul said in the second half of verse 12. He repeats the Corinthian goofy slogan, but he changes his response Right? You know, all things are lawful for us. And then he's, he's quoting them, and then he switches it up and he says, But I will not be dominated by anything. This guy, man, this apostle wanted to be dominated by something. This is the Holy Spirit, not by anything else. He's telling them, You sure, you can go ahead and engage in all things, but there's some things that you might engage in that are not helpful, and there are some things that will dominate you. This is what he's saying. This is a a warning here about the power of sexual sin because sexual immorality, sexual sin is the context. That's primarily what he's pointing to here. If the Corinthians continue to use their God-given freedom to engage in sexual immorality or just to sweep it under the rug or to laugh about it and not take it serious in the church, they can become dominated by it and eventually destroyed by it. This is the warning here. MacArthur's got a great set of statements on this. He says, no sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. The more it is indulged, the more it controls the indulger. Often it it begins with small indiscretions which lead to greater ones and finally to flagrant vice. No sin that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, problems and destructiveness than sexual sin. It has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating and killing as well as bitterness hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness." End quote. That is a poignant, perfect explanation of the power and lethality of sexual sin. If sexual sin isn't dealt with by us quickly, it will eventually dominate and destroy us or its subject. It will. It is like the bite of a cobra, its venom slowly spreading through the body and killing its victim. Like all sin, sexual sin, sexual immorality brings death, James 1.15. And sometimes sexual sin, sin I think in some cases sexual sin brings death, death that James is talking about, much quicker than other sins. Its wage is death, Romans 6.23, it's a wage of all sin, especially sexual sin. See, the problem is the Corinthians were not taking sexual sin seriously. In fact, they were boasting in light of the fact that it's rampant in their church. They're boasting about all things are permissible, all things are lawful for us because we have Christian freedom. That's their response to rampant sexual sin in their church. That is not a right response to rampant sexual sin in your church. Paul is saying, it is true that you are free to do a great many things, but not all things are helpful, and some will flat out dominate and destroy you. That's what he's saying. And to reinforce this teaching, Paul cites the Corinthians a third and fourth time in the 10th chapter of this epistle in verse 23. In verse 23a, he says the exact same thing, same quote, all things are lawful, and then he says his exact first initial response, but not all things are helpful. So he's reminding them. And then in the second half of verse 23, he switches it up. He says, all things are lawful. He quotes them. And then he says, but not all things build up. There are things that we do that might not be inherently sinful, but they have zero constructive value. They do not build up. What do they not build up? They do not build up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 12. That is what Christian liberty is intended for, Christian freedom. The building up of the body, the building up of other believers, the spread of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. You see, in this land of freedom we think of this radical autonomy and liberty and and individualism and and, and, and we, we brought this lie with us out of the world right into the church and it's all about us and we can do whatever we want Paul is saying you are free to do a great many things but a great many of them aren't helpful and some of them will kill you. That's what he's teaching them right here. Now I do not want you to misunderstand the text i don't want you to misunderstand my interpretation of it okay this is not a call to abandon all the things we enjoy and become some kind of monk in a monastery or a nun in a convent unless some of the things that you enjoy are sinful get rid of them but this is not some radical call to just to Oh, I'm going into the monastic life. I don't know how I'll do it in Modesto, but I'm doing it. It's not what this is. It is a call to rethink Christian freedom and figure out how we can become more intentional with our time and more helpful toward others for Christ. That is the challenge here to you and to me. That's it. So it's not like, oh, great, after Sunday, I can't ever go to Disneyland again. No, just next time you go, I want you to take a bullhorn and start preaching the gospel. (laughs) It's weird because like five minutes after I got on that milk cart and they threw me out of there, I didn't even see it coming. That's because you don't think. I'm just saying, Christian freedom, there is an intention behind it. Christ has made us free for him, for him, for him, not for us for you and for me, for each other. He's he's freed us so that we could be there for each other and build each other up, so that we could be there and and proclaim the gospel and spread the gospel of grace. That's the purpose of our freedom. It's not so that we can just do whatever. Number two, Paul clears up their confusion concerning the stomach and sexual immorality. We see this in verses 13 to 14. This is an interesting weird concept they have here. And he says it like this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. That's an interesting set of statements. I want you again to notice the quotations. The very beginning of verse 13, He is citing them, He is not teaching this about food per se. It's something that they were saying. It's something that they understood. Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. End quote. He's quoting them. He's citing them. This may have been a popular saying in Corinth. It might have been not just in this church, but it might have been a pervasive saying in that sexually charged community. Perhaps it was a proverb meant to celebrate the idea that sex is really no different than eating. The stomach was made for food, and guess what? It's very Corinthian to say this. The stomach was made for food, and the body was made for sex. Hmm. It is likely that the Corinthians were using it as an analogy to justify their sexual sin. But Paul stops them short here, doesn't he? He is, in a sense, saying it is true that that, uh, the, that the stomach and food were made for each other. That's what he's saying. But it is also true that the relationship is purely temporal. One day, when their purpose has been fulfilled, God will do away with both of them. He says it like this. God will destroy both one and the other. The stomach will go away. The food will go away. There'll be no need for these things. Why is that? Because... Biological processes or processes—I I don't know how you say it—processes, processes, biological processes, uh, such as the stomach and food—they're just not necessary in the new heavens and new earth. There's no need for them. What do you mean? I won't need to eat? I don't know if you'll need to eat. There's a marriage supper coming, but this process is done away with. Paul says it right here. There's, it's not the kingdom's not about this. He says that in Romans 14, 17, doesn't he? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. That's what the kingdom is characterized by, not eating and drinking and sex and these other things. But see, that the fact that God will do away with that process of stomach and food, that biological process, that is not the case with the body as a whole or the body itself might do away with eating and digestion and all that, but the body is not done away with. That's what he's saying here. Paul tells the Corinthians that the bodies of believers are designed by God for much more than mere biological functions. The body, he says it right here, the body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And likewise, the Lord for the body, which means that Christ is to be honored and glorified through the use of these bodies. You know, stomach and food will come to an end in that kingdom, but the body won't as a whole. It's intended now and then for Christ is what he's saying. The destiny of the body stands in direct contrast to the destiny of the stomach and food. The latter will be destroyed, but the body will be raised from the dead by the power of God, just as God used his power to raise the Lord Jesus. This is exactly what he says in verse 14. Now, our bodies, I think we would all agree, they're, boy, they're aging. Mm. Estee Lauder can't keep up with this one. They're aging, that sounds like I use makeup. Strike that, reverse it. Our bodies are aging, they're hurting all the time. I get hurt when I'm sleeping. I've said this, I go to bed fine and I wake up sore and I'm like, were you elbowing me? Yes, because you were snoring. She put a hole in my side, you know. No. But I go to bed and and I wake up sore and hurting. Aren't you supposed to go to bed and wake up refreshed and ready for 2023? I wake up, I'm like, I don't want to go to church. I feel bad. Our bodies are aging. They're they, they hurt. They're, they're, following, they're following apart. I, I don't even like looking in the mirror anymore. I, I find more hair. It's just coming out of everything. It's gonna be coming out of my eyeballs at some point. I'm gonna be like, cousin it what is it with aging and it's just the hair it's like this is so funny and it's not really gross but kind of but I was driving and I and I looked in the mirror the rearview mirror and I, I saw this like really really long hair like hanging down and I was like good lord how did I miss that dude it was like going over my mouth and and I and I grabbed it started to lift it up, and my nostrils started going up. And I was like, that's coming out of my nose. What the heck? And then I was like, I mean, it was horrible. And I was just like, and then my eyes were watering. You know what it's like, right? When you pluck those nose hairs. Women are like, we don't have hair in our noses. Well, men do. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. These bodies are just jacked up. They're falling apart. But Paul's point here is that they are still insanely, incredibly important. Even though they don't look like they did when you were 21, they don't feel like they did. You don't feel like you did when you were, you know, 17, right? Or whatever. Maybe it's falling apart. Maybe you're dealing with prostate cancer like Brother Bruce and others in this room, bladder cancer and these things. And, you know, there's all kinds of malady, right? But but they're still insanely important, Paul is saying. I mean, he had stripes all over him from being whipped and beaten for being a man about the gospel. But his body was still super important. He understood that. You see, our bodies have a present purpose and they have a future purpose great quote by Mark Taylor I think it's in your bulletin it says the body was made in order to become a member of Christ who lived and died to, in order to redeem it to buy that body And the body will not be destroyed but is destined for resurrection hmm. it's a member of Christ that's present day reality and purpose it's destined for resurrection That's its future purpose our bodies belong to Christ and they belong to his body on earth the church Our hands are his hands. Even if they're weak and feeble, they're his hands. Maybe they're strong. Our feet are his feet. Maybe they heard at Disneyland, they're still his. Our mouths are his mouth. Our legs, backs, our arms, all his. What we do with these bodies literally impacts Christ because he lives in believers, Galatians 2.20. We are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in us. Remember, we learned that back in chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians. When we go to and fro, Christ is with us. When we use our bodies for this or that, Christ is with us. He is always with us to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. So, when we use our bodies for sin, Christ is with us. This is where Paul's going Oh, does he ever go there? I'm, I'm glad that that we have another section where he really goes there. And we'll we'll do that one next Sunday when kids aren't in the room. It's already been on the edge. Some of you are going, I'm going to have to talk to my kid when I get home, that bonehead. And let me tell you, <laughs> if I went a little further, you'd be like, I think I need to find a new church. All I have to do is read the text. Down in verses 15 to 16, Paul uses fornication to illustrate this truth of Christ being in us there. When a member of, and this is the illustration he uses, but like I said, I'll play lightly here. When, when a member of the body of Christ unites himself with a woman who, with a woman who works in the world's oldest profession, (laughs) you know what I mean, right? Good. I'm trying to be discreet because I'm, I'm looking at really small kids. When he, joins with her he becomes one with her the two become one flesh maybe you didn't understand this theological truth but it's not marriage that makes a man and a woman one flesh it's what they do in the bedroom on their wedding night consummation brings oneness not just marriage the coming together and the illustration he's giving in 15 and 16 is this when a man does this with that woman of the night just This same man is also joined to the Lord and one in spirit with him through faith. He joins himself to a woman of the night while being joined to Christ. Mm. He makes himself one with her while being one with Christ. Oh, that is disgraceful now let's be clear about something here I know Christ is in us you understand that but you must understand that Christ never participates in our transgressions never he is righteous he is holy he is without sin he was without sin before he came into the world he was without sin while he was in the world he's without sin outside of the world he is always without sin he is always perfect and holy and righteous so he does not participate in our transgressions, but since he is in us, since he is joined to us, since he is one with us, he is present when we engage our bodies in these things. He probably looks away because of your sins. He has turned away, Isaiah 59.2. I don't know how it works. He doesn't leave you while you engage in these sins because he will never leave you nor forsake you. If he left you for one second, you'd die. You'd be dead. You'd be back to unregenerate and dead. And this, of course, is why the Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin, Ephesians 4.30. We are spiritually subjecting Christ to our immorality, things that led to his violent, brutal death on a cross. We are turning these bodies of ours, his home and temple, into a dirty den of iniquity. This grieves God and rightfully so. Rightly so. Rightly so. Amen? This is why the Spirit is grieved. Paul asks and answers a rhetorical question down in verse 15. It's rhetorical because if the Corinthians answered it, they would have answered it wrong. Should members of Christ be joined with a woman in this manner? Look at his reply down in 15. Never! Exclamation point. Never. Subjecting ourselves to such filth dishonors our bodies. It dishonors the body of Christ because we're members of the body of Christ. Believe it or not, my sin dishonors you and your sin dishonors me because we're members of the body together. But worst of all... It dishonors the head of the body, Christ himself. If we choose to wallow in the mire of transgression like sinful swine, we drag the church and Christ into the mud with us. Right there. This is why these bodies of ours and what we do with them is so important They are not meant for dishonorable purposes like sexual immorality. They are meant for God's glory. Slide down to verse 20 of chapter 6. We also need to consider the body's importance in light of its future purpose. Right? Because the present day purpose is the glory of God. That's, That's it for now. That's what we should be aiming for with these bodies. But we've got to consider the future purpose of these bodies. We've got to think about that. Simple fact that what happened to Christ happens to those incorporated into Christ. Christ was raised from the dead and glorified. Amen? We celebrate this at Easter time. Christmas time, we celebrate his birth. Easter, we celebrate his death on Friday, and then on Sunday, his rising, God raising him from the dead. What happened to him happens to us. Therefore, these bodies of ours, will be raised from the dead. This is exactly what he says in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us. And we need to add Romans 6, 5 and Romans eight eleven for good measure. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, if we've died to ourselves, we will or we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He died, we die with him. That's what baptism Represents. He was raised, we are raised as he was raised. He was glorified, we will be glorified. Of course, in Romans 8:11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That, my friends, is resurrection language. Hallelujah. What happened to Christ? happens to those who have been put by a gracious, merciful, sovereign father in Christ. What happened to him happens to us. He was raised, we shall be raised. These perishable bodies of ours, because boy, are they perishable. They will go down into the ground like seeds. And when Christ returns, they will be raised imperishable. First Corinthians 15, 42, same epistle fashioned for immutable, unchanging righteousness, unchanging, unmitigated peace, eternal everlasting joy in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. And they will be glorified, not merely because they have been made new and perfect at the return of Christ when they're raised, but because King Jesus himself will share His glory, share His throne, share His rule with His people, you and I forever and ever. Hebrews 2.10, Revelation 3.21. We're glorified in that our bodies are made perfect, but mostly because the King shares His glory with us. You see, the present purpose of our body is to glorify God. The future purpose of our body is, is resurrection and glorification. These two realities are what make these bodies of ours so incredibly important and should absolutely transform and shape our view of Christian freedom. Like the Corinthians, all things are lawful for us in a sense. But as Paul wisely stated, not all things are helpful, and some things have the power to dominate as believers we should exhibit the same wisdom and watchfulness when pondering and practicing our freedom yeah i'm covered by the grace of god he loves me forever nothing can separate me from his love nothing will take christ from from me nothing will separate him from me he'll never leave me nor forsake me therefore there's nothing out there that I could engage in that could, that could break that up. But there are things that can harm me. There are things that aren't helpful to others and to the kingdom or to my family. Yeah, I think adultery will be really helpful to my marriage. You've got to be a dummy to think like that. It's going to blow it to pieces. And I know Rachel, it will. She will blow me to pieces. There are some things that are just not going to be. You can do it, but it's not going to be helpful. And there are th- some things that you could do that, that will grab a hold of you and keep a hold of you for a long time. Substance, substances. There's people in here that know exactly what I'm talking about because they came out of that. Sexual immorality, nothing grabs a person like that. Mm. Pornography, you know, that has a grip on so many men, probably men in this room. How sad. It can get a hold of you. Pornography has the power to change the chemistry of your brain, just as substances do, will reprogram you to only want that, lethal. Our Christian freedom isn't for any of that stuff. We need to be very watchful, and we need to, we need to, we need to use wisdom like Paul did. Sure, anything goes, but not everything's good. Some things destroy. We need to be watchful when using it. Don't use it for illicit purposes. I would simply end with this. May we use this wonderful gift of Christian freedom to be helpful to the cause of Christ, to be holy in our daily lives, bringing God glory in what we think, say, and do. Literally all things. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31.